0: Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Focus On. You are listening to Voice of Ashon on 101.9 FM KVSH. Let me start off the hour by asking you a question. What are people doing elsewhere in the world that's working really well, and how can we learn about it? Today, I am talking with Christian Albrecht, who is joining me from Denmark. We're gonna go ahead and dive into the show, but first I want Christian to tell you all a little bit about who he is and what he does. Go for it.
1: Well, my name is uh, Christian Albrecht. I'm a professor in Denmark at the political science uh, department um, at a Center for Comparative Welfare Studies. So it's basically about comparing how societies around uh, the globe, especially sort of in Western countries, has solved some of the social problems, the labour market problems, and yeah, and trying to learn from each other, and normal and naturally there's sort of a, a little bit of a Nordic touch uh, probably to what I'm going to to say and 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 my research theme as well.
0: So, for someone who is young, because the younger generation is so super important, um, is someone who finds this interview interesting. Um, would they be looking in the direction of like sociology or cultural anthropology or what, what realm of academia is this coming from? Well, it's sort of in,
1: in, interdisciplinary uh, field and uh, welfare state studies. So, but basically, I think it's mostly located in sociology and then a little bit of political science. Uh, that's sort of the, the two uh, big uh, components of, um, of, of the research uh,
0: I'm doing okay thank you so rise and fall of social cohesion is the title of your book which was published in 2013 correct yes and the subtitle is the construction and deconstruction of social trust in the u.s uk sweden and denmark so you're comparing these four nations specifically in this book
1: yeah, uh, and the, the notion of social cohesion, its sort of it, there's a, they, they can be integrated or they can be less integrated. And, and, and that's one way of labeling them. We do have some measures for, for how should we judge whether, how coherent societies are. And, and, and one of those that has become fashionable within the last sort of uh, two decades is uh, the level of trust you have in our people. And uh, so this is sort of the, the big theme of the book. And then why, why compare these four countries? And, and the story is that uh, normally um, these levels of trust, they are very stable across time. But for these uh, four countries, they, you actually have seen changes. Uh, pretty dramatic uh, changes. So that's why I, I sort of uh, I picked these uh, f- uh, four countries.
0: Let's go a little bit further down into the book, and then we'll jump sideways into the concepts a bit. You said there were some dramatic changes in these four countries specifically, which is why you sort of chose to focus on them. Yeah. So so the Danish
1: case and, and also the Swedish case is um, a case of uh, rising trust uh, in these countries. So people, there's simply more people saying that One of our measures is we ask people, do you think other people can be trusted or do you think that you can be too too careful? And in Denmark, we have sort of become world champions in people perceiving other people as trustworthy. And uh, so it's around sort of, it's 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 about 76% of Danes who will say that most people, they uh, can be trusted. More or less the same level in uh, in Sweden. And that has sort of increased within the last... Uh, 30 years. So when we asked Danes the first time in '79, it was above. Uh, it was only half of, of Danes saying that they trust most people. So what we have seen is sort of an increase in trust, and uh, well, it's it's a, little, it's a little bit fascinating because if you look around the world, what people would like to become—that is to become more coherent, to to, to have a, a higher degree of uh, of integration. So I picked Denmark and Sweden as examples of uh, how, to, how how uh, social cohesion actually increased.
0: Given that Denmark has had that um, first place happiness thing, what's that they do internationally? Like, you know, who are the happiest people in the world or something? And I think for three yeah. years in a row, the Danes were. So that's interesting, too. And now it's moved over to like maybe Norway, but still that, that happiness you know um what do you call it trophy is like floating around the northern scandinavian countries yeah naturally
1: things they go they go together especially happiness and trust is is strongly interrelated so people who 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 trust people uh, other people uh or at least that that they they perceive other people as as trustworthy they are also much more inclined to say that they are happy so it's a so somehow they interlinked, and it is uh, sort of part of the puzzle. What is actually going on in these Nordic countries mm-hmm. that, that that made them so uh, coherent? And uh, and then I make the contrast to the U.S. Uh, because that is actually the case. Uh, the case we knew the best. That we know that there has been a, a decline in the level of trust. It, 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 U.S. was a pretty high trust country uh, back in the in, in the beginning of the sixties, and then we have seen sort of a steady. Uh, decline. And that was uh, famously analyzed by uh, Robert Putnam in, in a book called uh, Bowling Alone. Hmm. But it, it, was a very, it was a very US uh, story. My book is sort of comparing, you know, that, let's, let's try to see what is actually, what are, what are the different Why is one country going in one direction? Together with UK, by the way, that's sort of my, my fourth uh, country. Mm-hmm. It's also an example of uh, decreased uh, or, or declining level of, of trust. So the book is all about, you know, looking at, at these four countries and trying to explain, we can look at the, the bad things that happen in the UK and, and US, and maybe is it can we see that the, other, the opposite things are happening in Sweden, Denmark, and you know why? Uh, trying to sort of find the mechanism that both uh, erode and in, in, increase uh, trust, that's sort of, uh, yeah, right. that's, uh, that, that's the puzzle.
0: So there's a TED Talk that I saw a while ago. So it's a TED Talk about the effects of the, Income gap on social welfare. And they were surprised. It was one of those wonderful moments where what you think you're going to find isn't, and then something just pops up into your face. And what they discovered was that if you compared all the countries based upon, let's say, um, some factor like um, guns, you know, how many guns do people have, and does that lead to social welfare being bad? you would always have outliers. So you'd have like, you know, the low gun countries, the high gun countries, yeah. and there'd be a little bit of a slant maybe, but then you'd have these yeah. weird outliers. Like look at Switzerland, you know, tons of gun ownership and yet very little gun violence. So they kept looking for something that wouldn't have an outlier. And what they found was the income gap was, was literally perfect. There was zero outliers. And as the income gap grew, all, every single one of the social welfare markers increased as being a problem. And so what I find interesting is you mentioned that America had high trust in the 60s, which was coming out of sort of the um, post, you know, FDR, um, invest in the country type of period. And then in the 80s, we had in both the UK and the US, we had the, um, so the Thatcher Reagan effect, which was essentially the drug war was launched and all sorts of, regulations were dropped that ensured that people were being taken care of and capitalism was like given a massive dose of amphetamines and we ended up with a skyrocketing income gap and now we have every single social problem is is apparently way worse than it was what are your thoughts on that
1: <laughs> well it's, it's sort of uh, wilkins uh, the work by richard wilkinson uh, that you mentioned it's um, it was more, his, his work was most famously published in, in the book *The Spirit Level*, and I think he, the, the TED talk is probably based on, on this book. And it's uh, and it's very convincing. in, in it, it is sort of it is also a little bit controversial because are ah, his numbers really as good as, as he says it is? But I sort of I I, um, I start from the same basic finding that uh, the level of uh, trust. People having each other is very strongly uh, correlated to income inequality, and it's the same story as uh, as Wilkinson puts there that that we have no outliers. So in more economically equal countries, they, we simply have higher trust levels, and in, in more economically unequal countries, we have um, uh, lower uh, trust levels. Right. So this is sort of so this is this is part of the. So far, we agree completely, but then. What has been the puzzle within my field, on within the trust literature, is how can we explain how, what is it that economic inequality does about trust? Uh, this is sort of the, what is the mechanism that would link income inequality to a lower, lower level of, uh, of, of, of trust? That has been the puzzle. And there are a number of arguments out there. And that was sort of basically what, what, what I was looking for. You know, how can we link this? Because... The competing diagnosis from the from the American case in, in in Robert Putnam's famous book *Boring Alone* was that it was it was not really about rising inequality in income inequality. It was about a decline in uh, particip- participation in civil society.
0: Mm-hmm. So it
1: was about American *Boring Alone* that was the problem. Right. Uh, they did not meet each other, and because they did not meet each other, in this. Uh, Bowling clubs. Then they would not learn to trust each other, and that was sort of the main problem. I had the same point of departure as Wilkinson. You know, that it's something about income inequality, but the question was, what is it actually?
0: A couple of things that I've noticed that are really interesting, and what I what I like about this is that if we focus on individuals and point our fingers at individuals, then those people will naturally feel defensive, which will close their mind. They won't want to hear what you have to say. They won't want to believe it's true because you know, and they'll run the other way. So you lose a potential ally uh, or a person you can partner with on dealing with a problem. So when I look at what's going on systemically on my island, I want to say up front, it has nothing to do with any of the individuals at all. What I see are system issues. So for example, our tiny island of 10,000 people has no community center. Now, community centers in our country function as a place where the people who anyone can go, you can attend for free. That means that people who are poor and don't have cash in their pocket, teenagers, let's say, have somewhere warm and comfortable, entertaining and enjoyable where they can go and hang out. And then other people who have money a little bit or a lot or more than that, they also oftentimes show up. So you can end up in a community center with having multiple class levels in the same place at the same time playing a pickup game of basketball. And if the rich person plays with the poor person and makes an authentic friendship, that increases their um, trust. I would say in people who are, you know, in the poverty class because now they have a personal friend in the poverty class. On our island, we don't have that basically, except for the public library. Everywhere on this island, you have to pay money if you want to be there. If it's a cafe, if it's a performance hall, if everywhere you want to go for six months out of the year while it's really cold and and uncomfortable outside, you can't be in that building unless you have money in your pocket. So inherently, the people who have always have money in their pocket, they can always go somewhere warm and comfortable and hang out. But all of the people on the island, which is probably like 40 to 50% of our population – that can't afford to go into those venues, they're not present, they're invisible, they're not there. So it seems like that is an example of it separates the classes, they don't rub shoulders, they don't bowl together, they don't get to know each other or make authentic friendships, and then all they know is they see someone walking down the street in a, in a heavy overcoat who they never hang out with socially, and they wonder, can I trust that person?
1: Uh, yes, so that is sort of one of, one of the arguments is that if we then look at what what is economic inequality doing, it might be the case that in more economic unequal societies, people they simply meet less across classes. So that would be the story of your of your. I don't know. Part of the story could be that if you have uh people living in separate neighborhoods because you have rich neighborhoods and then you have people they cannot afford to live together some are rich they live in separate neighborhoods and then you have poor people living in in poor uh neighborhoods well then they will not meet each other and then they will build the negative stereotypes and especially sort of the 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 deprived areas they will be they will be labeled as a place for untrustworthy people where you uh, where you shouldn't go this is one of the, the, the the theories that it is actually about experiences And there is something to it because if you look into uh, the Nordic countries and you try to explain the puzzle, why is trust level so high? You could point to the fact that people they meet each other much more. They they meet each other in civil societies, and they also meet each other more across classes, partly because the class differences they are smaller, so people they live more together, and especially in the the primary um uh, secondary uh, schools they are called people schools so and 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 things are changing now but it, it used to be the case Or above
0: 90
1: around uh, 70 80 90 percent it's a little bit it used to be higher up to 90 percent um use these uh, people' schools where people they were actually mixed so it's one of the big theories that you maybe it's it's, it's, it's a matter of um, Actual exchanges and, and friendship across uh, classes, but um, it, it's, it's not my explanation, but it's, it's it's one of the big ones out there. <laughs> so,
0: what is your explanation, or do you think that there's not? Do you think it's going to be multiple explanations making up different slices of the pie?
1: Well, I have one of my my spe- specific contributions was that, uh, like um, the title of the book is called "The Social Construction," so it's about you know maybe maybe these images we have about. Our fellow citizens or members of societies, maybe they are not so strongly uh, related to actually actual uh, experiences, and we know that from the data that being divorced or being uh, um, having been robbed uh, or b- been exposed to a burglary or something like that is it's actually it's, it doesn't seem to have a big impact on on untrust uh, levels. If you ask people afterwards whether most people can be trusted, it seems to us that these. Experiences—they are not that important. So it could be the case that maybe uh, we should look for more into how people are constructed uh, in our imagination. You know, so so who who, uh, uh, and and there, mass media uh, is important, and especially the perception of uh, to which classes do most of your fellow uh, citizens belong.
0: So so. I want to get right back to what you're going to say but you mentioned media one of the things that happened to me as a child i was born in 72 so i was becoming cognitively aware in the 80s um, is that at some point in the 80s or early 90s i'm not sure this television show was created called cops and cops was basically like a reality show and you traveled along with police officers in their cars but of course there was music you know there was like this really intense music and it was very much a mainstream media television show. And one of the things that I can look back on now, and I think I may have recognized a little bit, but I don't think it figured out till college level was that these cops were always in poor neighborhoods. It wasn't always black people. Sometimes it was Hispanics and sometimes it was whites or whatever. But what you didn't have was cops rolling through downtown New York or the Hamptons, and basically arresting a super rich guy in his tie who's snorting really expensive coke and throwing a party with a bunch of you know underage prostitutes. So there's plenty of crime that happens in the upper classes, but this television show, which ran probably for a decade, was all focused on crime in the lower classes. And I, if it was just about cops and just about crime, it should have been all classes. But it was very distinctly lower classes. Yeah. So that sounds like, that seems like, um, you know, a type of effect would would be had on the society watching such a show.
1: Yeah, I, I think, and that's what I'm looking into, because then it, it is not so much about what is the actual crime level, because if you look at into crime levels, they are not strongly correlated to trust levels. So it's not so much about the level of crime, it's more so the imagined level of crime. Right. You also know that even though, you know, the crime levels, they might actually uh, fall, uh, it, but it, it's difficult to register crime levels. But but at the same time, the perceived level of crime uh, uh, rate might increase. So it's, it's 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 more about you know how people are constructed. And I think my sort of one of the main contribution is that if you are right, and I think you're right, that untrustworthy people they are at the low end. Uh, there you have the criminals, and there you have. Um, those people could worry, worry about. Then what we tried to do in a survey was to ask people, uh, how do you think your society look like? Simply asking, what size do you think uh, those at the bottom of society, they make up of all society? And there you find some, uh, let's say, weird answers, or strange answers. Mm-hmm. In mean, UK and US, you have the perception that the bottom of society is where most people they are located. So they, 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 be, they believe that the middle classes, uh, they are not uh, in majorities. Actually, it is sort of the, the bottom or the lower classes or the deprived that are in, uh, in majority. So if, when, you, when we ask people, do you think most people can be trusted? Then these Americans and these uh, uh, Britons, Britons, they might tell us no, because when they think about most people, they think about poor and deprived people. Uh, in, in in bad neighborhoods, um, so that could actually make a big difference. And if you and, and if you ask Danes and Swedes, uh, how do you think your society look like? And you know what are sort of the the the, the proportions? Then uh, Danes they are world champions in believing that they live in a middle class society. So they will tell you that uh, most people they are located in the middle, and then we have a few at the bottom, and then a few at the top. Uh, And that makes another big difference, because those people that can be trusted the most uh, are middle-class people, at least in our perception. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you watch your show about the cops, most cops, they tend to be from middle classes, or we perceive them as persons from the middle classes. They have a wife, and they have two kids, and they have a car, and they have a house. And and, and we have have a picture of uh, the middle classes as... Um, much more trustworthy than than the lower classes, where you have the, the criminals and you have all the problems. But they are also more trustworthy than the upper classes. So, if we, and, and we know that from 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 a number of studies that if you ask people uh, to judge the level of 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 warmth and competence, uh, people they always say that rich people they're cold and they might not be able to trust them. Uh, so, it's that's a strong social construction around the middle as, some, as, uh, as good guys. <laughs> Let's
0: put it that way. Right, right, right. So, Okay, so we're going to come back to this in a second So I'm going to do a quick station identification, but we're going to be returning to sort of this concept of perception because I'm pretty sure that there's plenty of proof out there, and I'm looking for some examples from you of how pers- popular perceptions are sometimes egregiously inaccurate. So, folks, if you are just now joining us, My name's March Twisdale. I'm the producer and host of Focus On. You're on 101.9 FM, or you're at my website or my podcast at marchtwisdale.com, listening to my interview with Christian Albrecht. Before we return to the interview, I'm going to give a shout-out to the folks that keep this show on the air. VOV programming support is provided by Vashon Golf and Swim Club, home to a challenging nine-hole golf course the gourmet greenside grill a heated outdoor swimming pool heated yay recreational and social amenities for the whole family and all with spectacular harbor views at vashon golf and swim.com vov programming support is also provided by snapdragon bakery and cafe Pastries in the morning, vegetarian lunches, wine, and music at night fill the friendly, casual atmosphere that is Snapdragon on Vashon Highway at the south end of Vashon Town. Okie doke. So, back to this amazing interview and all this fun stuff about how people think and what's going on inside of our noggins. Perception. The power of perception. We all have those great examples in our personal life where Someone told us something about someone, we met them for the first time, and wow, did that gossip ever affect our initial impression of that person. And sometimes the gossip was completely wrong, and we thought, wow, I can't believe my perception was so skewed by something I had heard. If we can get people to realize how easily we can fail in the world of perception, I think it'll get people to slow down a bit and maybe want to check their assumptions before they just assume they're accurate. So give us some examples of how we can get things wrong.
1: Yeah, one of the main examples I, I start from is um, uh, a big uh, American literature on uh, perception of, of, uh, of, of blacks. And uh, one of the big misperceptions is that if you ask Americans uh, what size of the population do you think the blacks make uh, make up, in the U.S., uh, one of the, sort of the early findings was that around 7% uh, 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 was sort of uh, the, the 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 normal guess uh, Americans would uh, would say, and in fact, in reality, is that it's down to 12.7% of, of the of the American uh, uh, public. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of the, the big misperception. And another one is about poverty. Uh, the misperception of uh, who is poor in the U.S. Uh, is uh, is, a, is a strong misperception that most uh, poor are blacks. Uh, and actually, if we sort of look at those uh, below the official uh, American poverty rate, uh, the, the blacks, they are all represented, but it's the, the majority is they are white. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is one of the big examples. And it's also one of the big examples where... The mass media uh, probably uh, makes a difference uh, because there has been a numbers. And, uh, one of one of my colleagues, at Martin Geens, which sort of inspired my book, uh, looked into news uh, magazines um, uh, in in the US and and tried to calculate when we have stories about poverty and poor. Uh, how are Uh, The pictures that follow this article, uh, how are the distribution of of skin color? And he found that uh, in uh, these stories, or the pictures attached to the poverty stories, some 60% uh, were blacks, and uh, in reality, they only make up uh, around uh, 20, 30%. So there was a strong over-representation of of black people in in poverty stories.
0: Our perception around race and equality in the U.S. just seems to be inaccurate yes <laughs>
1: and i think I, I i use the same so I, I i start from this point of departure and then uh, let's look at if this has some. if this can explain that the lower trust levels well the, the, the thing could be that maybe more americans think of uh, most other americans as somebody that belong to the bottom of society maybe they think of uh, most americans as blacks uh, and maybe that would sort of a uh, explain, you know, why they tell us that you cannot trust most people anymore because they, they think of these masses of untrustworthy uh, groups at the bottom of society. That, that was sort of, that was the thesis uh, and then the competing idea is, well, it's just because they are black <laughs> uh, and, and, and we know that this, uh, we, it, it's, it's a very old American story about uh, racial stereotypes uh, but then I looked into to the UK because they do not have uh, as much, uh, they they do not have the same history right. of having a, a black underclass. So, uh, so uh, we did a media study uh, trying to replicate what Martin Greens did in the US and looked at how do uh, the Britons actually look at uh, their lower classes and could we find the same negative stories? And uh, if we if we could do that, then we had the idea that. Then it is more about increasing inequality than it is actually a matter about race. Uh, because, uh, yeah, so, so, so maybe it's not race per se, maybe it's about actually black people living in, in poor neighborhoods. And if you have white people uh, living in poor neighborhoods in, in Britain, then you have the same negative uh, stories. Uh, so what we find is that the American stereotype about a welfare queen is replicated one-to-one in, in UK. You can, you can find the same uh, oral presentation of this idea that you have young mothers just uh, uh, producing children to live off the state. In the, in, in the UK, they were not black, but they were white people.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and
1: you, have, uh, you have the same uh, about the, the, the perception that black, they are lazy. That's a very old classic uh, the American perception or misperception. Uh, but you find the same in the UK about uh, uh, unemployed people being strongest uh, or, or whatever they're called. And, 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 and though they are white, and also in terms of who, the, who are actually pictures in newspaper articles, they are much more white uh, than they are in UK. But, but you have the same negative stereotypes.
0: Right, right, right. So, right.
1: This, so, so this was the story about telling that it's not only about race, and it's not only a particular American story. It's a more general story that if you make lower classes very poor and uh, then as you also did in the uk during the Thatcher period then you simply produce these negative stories and you produce this perception of having a last bottom of society that cannot be trusted that that are deviant and that uh try to exploit the system and and, uh, and uh, so that was sort of the clue
0: so uh, so fundamentally of- in a system the people who are poor have the least amount of power and the people who Are wealthy have an exorbitant amount of power. So you have um, some super rich dude on the golf course can write a check in five minutes, hand it to his lackey who will dash off and use that money to pay for, you know, a hundred lobbyists to go into Washington, D.C. and lobby on behalf of this guy. And he's going to just turn around and, and shoot his next golf ball towards the next hole. Meanwhile, you have someone like me or you or an average person. And if we want to have influence, we have to take days off from work. We have to get in a car or on a train. We have to go to the place of government. We have to stand there by ourselves, run around, talk to people. And the amount of effect that we can have in a 72-hour period is still only one one-hundredth or one one-thousandth of what this guy did in five minutes of sitting still and writing a check. So we have this, that. To
1: some extent, uh, it's it's a matter of about... um... So I, I agree on the fact that we have very uh, we have very strong misperception about uh, lower groups of society, how trustworthy they are, and, and just the proportion. But but what we did then was to replicate the same studies, also the media studies in Sweden and Denmark, and uh, and look at how do Danes and Swedes look at at, at poor people, and and you find a very opposite uh, pattern that even though you know they are they are still at the bottom of society. They are not represented among journalists, but, but still, uh, the stories they were they were the, the, the dominant Danish story about uh, poverty, and also the Swedish uh, was a positive story. But it was a, it's a story about these people that they, they it's not their fault. Uh, there was a lot of story. There was no stories about uh, Danes. There was one, uh, and come back to that. But otherwise, the three, the Swedish and Danish media over a five-year period we sampled. Uh, there was no, uh, there was, there were no articles about poor people uh, being um, being being lazy or having misused uh, the system. So it's it's about it's it's not a it's not a universal uh, law that you always have to have a misperception misperception of of, of, of poor people.
0: But you're uh, saying so- that those two countries have high levels of trust, and the UK and the US have low levels of trust. And you're saying that in the high trust countries, even the media itself behaves distinctly different from the media behavior in the low-trust countries, begging the question, what comes first, the chicken or the egg?
1: Yeah, and that's nice to be clear. That, that, that is, that's the chicken and the egg discussion. But, but but my argument was that maybe this high trust level in Denmark and Sweden, maybe it's not so much about us actually being more trustworthy. or It could also be about the perception we have of our fellow citizen. And if you look into the mass media, you'll see that people they read uh, they, they, they will be fed with with uh, much fewer poverty stories, uh, and if they if they do have stories about lower groups or poor people, then they tend to be positive, or they tend to be stories about uh, that these are actually decent people that uh, cannot help that they are in this uh, situation. The Danes and the Swedes they do not have this image of the bottom being untrustworthy and somebody that you should be afraid of and and therefore, you don't have the same. Uh, they are not. We are not as alert as Americans. Uh, just it's, it's also. It's about you know leaving your kid on on a uh, on the sidewalk when you go into a right. shop or something like that. That's one of the most famous examples why they, that, that they they would do this because they do not imagine that that they have. A group of fellow citizens that are totally deviant and that cannot be trusted and therefore you have to be careful all the time.
0: Right. Let me be clear about that because I'm not sure if my American audience will understand. So in Denmark, folks, um, what's really popular are these actually is huge um, strollers. I don't know exactly what they're called, but they're like the ones we would have used back in the 50s, these giant things. And I've been there twice, and it's true. People are walking around with these ginormous things in front of them. It's hilarious. They'll just park these giant strollers with their baby you know three-month-old baby whatever fast asleep or whatever Usually covered in lots of blankets, so they're warm regardless of the weather and they 'll go into the cafe and leave these giant strollers like sitting right outside the cafe while they go in and they do what they need to do or whatever, and come back and make sure baby's okay every once in a while. whereas I think most people are just cringing right now if you're an American listener, the idea of even getting you know a few feet away from your kid, um, much less leaving them outside of the building so I just wanted to be clear that 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 was this little this thing that was being mentioned
1: yeah that's that's the thing and 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 just to end the story, that was about a ladies woman being uh, imprisoned in New York because she left her child in a stroller outside a cafe. <laughs> you know, this was yeah. deemed, uh, you know, uh, uh, as an as an offense, uh, criminal offense in, in the US, and, and she just had to defend herself. This is what we do in Denmark, and that's why this example became so became so famous. But ah, oh, uh, interesting, yeah. got yeah, it. So it's but so it it comes down to these sort of basic rule of thumbs that are. are Different, uh, how you behave and and, and and how afraid you should be, and uh... now
0: okay. So so you mentioned that. So when we're talking about um, trust, imagine that you have a well-fed dog. You trust yeah. that that dog just ate breakfast. He's asleep on his cushion. Whatever. He's a well-fed dog. You know. You set your plate of dinner down on the table. And you walk out of the room. Come back. You think it's going to be there, but if that dog is a stray dog. That's starving, not being fed properly, and is sitting in the corner. And you put your nice smelling hamburger down on the table and decide to walk out of the room and come back again. You're gonna have a sense that that starving animal might come over here and eat my hamburger. In Denmark and Sweden, you know that there's ample resources available to help them and to help take care of them, which means that even if they're little hungry, someone's going to come along and give them what they need. So the trust in a person who's having a hard time, I think would be higher because you know, they're going to get taken care of until they can, you know, get the next job or, or whatever. In America, we know that the people who are struggling are not going to be helped. We know that the stray dog is going to stay hungry. i go through Seattle. There are six tent cities in Seattle. Every single bridge has people living underneath it in tents every corner every block in downtown seattle pretty much has at least one if not three homeless people okay so when you are living around that and you know these people have no hope no help i think it makes sense that our trust is going to go down because they are in a state of desperation and they're going to stay desperate because no one's helping them
1: yes that is uh, the way uh the human mind might uh, begin to ass- a- assess whether other people can be trusted or not. Or not. And, and I think when, and you can even sort of en- enhance the argument a little bit. So it's, it can be about if, if, if poor people, if they are really hungry, or then, then you know, they ha- they have something to gain by being untrustworthy, rub you or whatever you want.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
1: so, so you might be more alert, uh, at least we, we might think so, that we should be more alert. Uh, and the other part of the argument is that poor people, they or deprived people, they might have less to lose. Uh, so normally, if you then behave untrustworthy, uh, then we have a, a number of ways of punishing people. Uh, one simple one is to put them to jail or take away the money. But, you know, if they do not have much freedom, or if they do not have much money, then it's, it's, a, little bit, it's, it's a little bit difficult to sanction Really poor people, whereas if they are better integrated in society, if they actually do have some money, if they do enjoy some freedom, then you might, you know, think that okay, they might be more trustworthy because they can, they have actually, uh, they, they they can lose uh, right. something, right. And, and normally, uh, so it's it's very easy to understand in terms of you know, uh, you you can you can you lose your freedom or you can lose money, but but normally, sort of from a sociological perspective, the normal way that we control each other is by Reputation. So, um, if you think that somebody has uh, done something wrong to you or, or behaved untrustworthy, then you let other people know that this is not a trustworthy person. You know, never, never go shop again in this shop because you know uh, they 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 cannot be trusted.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh,
1: and and the problem is that if you are a poor person, then you might also think that they have very little reputation to lose. Because if you go tell somebody, you know that you should not trust this guy, and then they'll tell him. But I didn't trust him anyway. <laughs> or uh, so, so, so it, it. So the idea is that the, the more uh, loosely attached some persons are to mainstream society, the the, the 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 harder it is to punish people or the, to sanction them if they behave untrustworthy, or at least we might think so. And therefore, it might sort of enter our assessment about should I. Be alert here
0: or I cannot simply just trust people around me well I'm going to um, go ahead and remind folks who they're listening to again real quick and then we're going to come back and I want to have you talk a little bit about how this is playing in with nationalism um, and that's a really important topic in the world today so and also immigration so folks you are listening to focus on my name is March twisdale producer and host of the show and I'm interviewing Christian Albrecht who is an author who lives in Denmark Uh, The book that we are talking about is The Rise and Fall of Social Cohesion. If you missed the start of the show, you can go to my website, marchtwisdale.com. But right now, I want to remind everyone that Voice of Vashon is kept alive and on the air by the generous support of our sponsors, including Vashon Adventures, home of Vashon Water Sports, and Vashon E-Bike offers eco-friendly adventures on land and in the water. Ride electric bikes, paddle kayaks, or paddle boards, and camp at Maury Island Marine Park. Learn more at VashonAdventures.com. VOB programming support is also provided by the Recess Lab, Vashon's favorite place to hang out literally. The bouldering wall is open with classes, open climb, and shoe rentals. Drop-ins are welcome at 17641 Vashon Highway Southwest or call 206 434 five, two, six, one. Okay. So Christian, we've got about a quarter of the show left. Let's talk a little bit about how nationalism is being impacted by these varying factors. And also what's going on with the ultimate, I don't know who you are, which is um, global immigration. People don't even speak the same language. This is some intense stuff. What can you share?
1: Well, it's, it's, uh, I continue sort of in in, in the same uh, line of reasoning. I think my point of departure is that nationalism is also a perception. It is the perception that those uh, inhabitants that happen to live within a given state border think that they share something culturally or that they belong to a common community. So it's also about perceptions. For instance, Danes, you know, yes, I feel Danish and I'm not German, but and there's more than just citizens, uh, citizenship, too. They think that we do share something. But the thing is that, you know, Danes, they are or Americans or Canadians, they are a very, very diverse group. Uh, and therefore, what they share is more that that what they imagine they share than what they actually share. So, that, so, so that's, that's what, one of my point of departure. So it, it's also a perception. Uh, it's uh, what, what is sometimes called imagined communities uh, by Benedict Anderson, a, a famous old book uh, called about you know nationalism. It's about fame, is about imagined uh, communities,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um, and then it's, it's it's the same story. You know what what do we imagine? What is the boundary of? To some extent, the nation states form the boundaries of what we've been talking about as a, your, your fellow citizen and, and and most people, but but when you ask to uh, citizens, these questions they they'll think about: Do I trust most other Americans? Do I trust most other Danes? So we still have the nation state forming uh, the boundaries, which also include some kind of uh, of, of nationalism or the idea that, uh, that, that 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 we share something.
0: Do people actually uh, think that? I mean, like like literally, uh, you have like tests or results or whatever that show that. That people will literally think they have a higher trust level of a person who's on one side of a border compared to another.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. We do that. We do have a number of uh, when we ask people, "Do you trust uh, people with another nationality?" Uh, and "Do you trust most people?" and you see that those people who uh, tell us that that those people who have a rule of thumb telling us that you can trust most people, they are also more inclined to trust people from a different, uh, with a different no. nationality yeah. or a different religion. But they have lower trust in them, but they are still more inclined to trust them. So right. to some extent, you do have, uh, like it's in Sweden and Denmark, it's, 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 everything is not glorious and everything, but it is a little bit of an advantage that people, they tend to have a general rule of thumb saying you can trust more people. So when you get migrants into the country, we trust them less, but still you do have a rule of thumb saying, well, maybe... They can be trusted, whereas in low trust societies, which the U.S. has become, right. not, not very low, but somewhat low, and also in the U.K. somewhat low, then you tend you have this general rule of thumb, and then when you meet somebody with a different religion or a different nationality, you might sort of it might enhance you know that feeling not, You can really never trust these people, and uh, or you, you you should really be careful now. That's sort of uh, uh, so so. Uh, and that is sort of naturally sort of what, what is what will happen to these trust levels when you have uh, increased ethnic diversity, you know, when when you have more colored people uh, in the Nordic countries, when you have more colored people, when you have uh, in, in, in in UK and uh, and in US and, and generally in Western countries, what, this is one of the big discussion we have: will it, will it increase or decrease uh, trust levels?
0: So one of the things that comes to mind is I tend to view almost everything as being rooted essentially in access to resources. Every war is fundamentally a resource war, even if it's viewed as being about religion. So this is just a personal perception. And I'm wondering because I grew up in what I call the Sesame Street era. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sesame Street, but it was part of public radio and public television. So it was publicly funded not manipulated by advertiser demands and it was very liberal so you had you know lots of um different colored people and the whole attitude was that we're a melting pot as a nation and that all these diverse people around the world come together and and blend together and the diversity and difference was really celebrated and now it seems like a lot of people are becoming whatever that word would be where they're opposed to diversity and people who are different from them what do you call that flip flop? P- particularly in the
1: U.S. or in in, uh, in, in general, it's a, it's also a matter of so the big melting pot dream. Was a matter? It's, it's a, it was sort of embedded in the notion of of, of of prosperity that you could come to this country and then you could make it. You, there was economic growth, there was upward mobility, even though you started at the bottom, but then you could turn middle classes. And so, if you look into the American dream, it was, it was very much a dream about getting a car, getting some uh, house, in uh, suburbia, and, 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 uh, and, and you have this idea about mobility. And so if you have migrants, they were just you know, uh, entered into the game and they have the same rules and there was enough for everybody. And right. now you're in, in, in the opposite position that people, they do not feel that they are in a mobile society. They, they feel they are stuck uh, in working classes or, or below. Right. and just if you enter migrants into this game it would just uh, turn worse because then the, they, they will they will not be mobile either and you just increase the competition at the bottom of society right yeah so it's, it's partly about resource but it was also even though uh, the americans they probably um, exaggerated the, the level of mobility the was mobility but it was not that big you know and and but they celebrated the big story so and, but you had the perception of mobility, at least, right, <laughs> and, right. and, and now we have lost the perception of of of, uh, of mobility.
0: Then they're looking sideways, and all they see is their fellow people as competition.
1: Yeah, and 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 therefore uh, you do not want to enter more migrants into the in, into the into the equation. is right. uh, Whereas it, in, in the northern in the northern Europe and Scandinavia, it's, it's a little bit of a different story because. You don't have this feeling that there's no mobility. You don't have this feeling that uh, there's not enough for everybody. But then you have the feeling that it's a small country, and you want to maintain what you think is so good. Uh, and it was never uh, it, when we had success. We have at least the perception that it was a pretty uh, homey society. That once we had this, the golden age, where where this uh, amazing society was built, and this is sort of, this is the narrative. So the big thing is, you know, the big puzzle is that you no. Know, can we continue this path uh, with a more diverse society, and th- that's one of the big puzzles that 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 sort of that is in the the knowledge debate at the moment
0: right, and of course, all of this is impacted simply by the increase in population on the planet. You know, just in general, everyone's feeling pressed up against the wall, it seems like.
1: We, yes, in some countries, <laughs> and a little bit, not not so much in Norway and Sweden, that's pretty empty countries, you still, the, the, the density, the population density, density is, is still very, very low. Yeah, so but it's not could... easy
0: to live there, it's a bunch of, you know, snow, <laughs> right? It's a bunch of snow, you know,
1: but it's just like in the northern part of Canada, it's, yeah. it's not that easy to live, but there's enough, there's enough room, at least. Or it's like but Wyoming
0: or North Dakota, there's not a lot of people there, but there's a reason there's not a lot of people there, I mean, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, hmm. Yeah. So, so, hot topic right now migration, big one. We've also got climate change, you know, affecting people. I just I interviewed someone about a year and a half ago. She told me that one out of every five humans alive on the planet today is currently on the move.
1: Yeah. Maybe that's a little, yeah. Maybe it's one out of seven. It's, it's, it's another estimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, still a so- lot of people. <laughs> It's a lot of people and uh, if we, uh, because what we see across border, the border crossing across uh, nation states, it's, only, it's, it's, it's the only part of it. Uh, the biggest part is actually internal migration.
0: Mm. So it's about
1: the Chinese uh, moving to the big cities, there's also India, but it's also a lot about disasters. Uh, right, the People, they move uh, due to the disasters. And, and so the future <laughs> looks a little bit like, the push for migration will increase simply due to climate changes right. because there will be regions where it is it can be flooded, it can it can simply be too hot. And when you look at this, it's uh, it's a little bit difficult to because it used to be we used to have a distinction between migration and asylum seekers, migrants and, and asylum
0: seekers. So right. if you
1: were asylum seekers, then you were personally. Uh, due to your political uh, statements or, or religion, you you, uh, you, uh, you could not uh, live in this uh, country. Right. And we could tell migrants, you know, that there's a, there's a stop of migration here. You're not allowed to come in. If it's only about economics, improving your economic uh, possibilities, we do not accept you. You need to have this uh, refugee status. But now things are changing, because now people they are coming and tell them, but I cannot live in this environment anymore. And then right. it's not as easily to tell, say to them, well, it's not our fault <laughs> because it is our fault. <laughs> it is sort of a it is changes imposed by us that makes these environments unlivable, and therefore it's um, change the boundaries between what is an asylum seekers and what is a, a migrant. Some of the Western countries they have sort of they have told that they will in in the Paris Climate Agreement they they agreed that you could have climate refugees, and, and that was meant for. Uh, small countries in the Pacific that were simply flooded. They, right. then, then they then they'll tell that if your country is underwater, <laughs> then you have the right to asylum in 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 one of these other countries. Yeah, but and it's it's so- there's so
0: much more going on, and you know, Syria. The war in Syria was preceded by I think it was three or four years of intense drought, which caused all sorts of problems. It's literally like. All their farming communities, everyone had to just give up and move to the cities. They weren't surviving. So you know, instability, lack of trust, like you were talking about, lack of social cohesion, I feel like, I almost feel a sense of relief because it was in the late 80s that my mother was studying environmental studies and getting her degree at the University of Sacramento. And I was in my teens and I was listening, paying attention and, and learning from her. So I have known... And had a strong scientific understanding of the aspect of global warming, climate change, since I was 15 years old. That was 30 years ago. And I've been sitting around for 30 years having this sense of anxiety because everyone knew there was this lingering possibility that if we united as a species and changed our way of doing things, that we could actually prevent Catastrophic climate collapse. Mm -hmm. But we didn't. So for 30 years, I've been having this anxiety because it was still this option that wasn't being taken by society. And that's very distressing. This last year, when the hurricanes wiped out Puerto Rico, when the fires burned through the Pacific Northwest, we breathed smoke almost all summer. I had three weeks that were free from having smoke in the air. California, you know, how many people died there? I have actually a sense of relief. We're not going to stop it. That desire to wish everyone would just get smart and change, that isn't going to happen. And it shifted in my brain. And I started thinking, okay, well, this is reality. How do I deal? And what's interesting about that is that it feels better. Now it feels like, how do I take action? How do I face this and constructively respond? That's empowering. I, as an individual, feel like, I'm going to make choices instead of sitting around hoping 6 billion other people will decide to make choices with me. So my question for you is, what are the, when it comes to the fabric of society and increasing the social cohesion so we're stronger and more united as we deal with these problems, what is it that a person can do that can help to strengthen their local community?
1: Oh, well, that's a difficult one. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) In in, in, in terms of climate changes, I think...
0: No, I mean in terms of, of, like you said, social cohesion. What is it we can do tomorrow at lunch? You know, what can we do tonight? What can we do? (laughs) Yeah,
1: if you have the idea that I will strengthen social cohesion in this society, then it's a little little, little bit more tricky because uh, the standard political science finding is that it's very, very hard to get out of low-trust uh, equilibriums, we, we call them that. If, if you are in a low-trust society, it's, it's very, very difficult to get out of it because uh, you have, and, and and the same about high-trust societies, that if you are in a high-trust society, it tends to be stable. And, mm-hmm.
0: and, and, and
1: one of the, the big explanations is simply that that, that, that uh, these rules of of, uh, of thumb that, that we get, we, we get them from our parents. That mm-hmm. it, 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 it comes down to some basic, uh, uh, when my kids, they ask me, can I go play uh, with somebody after school at their house? And I'll tell them, yes, just go, even though I do not know the mother and father. Then my child, uh, this is, uh, apparently you can trust most people. And my parents' rule of thumb is that Uh, Okay, I can go play with uh, with whom I want, Uh, and if I and if I told them no, you cannot because I'm not so sure. Then uh, my child will will sort of uh, uh, get the perception that I I I can never be uh, too careful. I I need to sort of calculate uh, uh, my risk. So the story is that is it's actually it's it's pretty difficult to to get out of these low trust or or even high trust equilibriums because Mm -hmm. people they tend to reproduce. Whatever they think are the standards, right? And if you and if you do trust people, then people they sometimes also behave more trustworthy,
0: right? Uh, right. So, right. So if
1: I lend them my car, then they will not uh, destroy my car because I behave trustworthy, and therefore I sort of uh, I, I put something at risk, and then they they want to behave nicely, and then they return the car nicely, and then I I, I reinforced in my perception that I can never. And it also worked the other way around If you pe- if you think that people they cannot be trusted, then you, you behave uh, in this way too. you either lock the door or you tell them that you cannot borrow my car. and then you know people they might start behaving as as they uh, were met. Right. As, some, as somebody that is not trustworthy apparently and that yeah I can just behave as I want because nobody really believes in me. Nobody right. really thinks that uh, I am trustworthy, so I just I can be untrustworthy because. So that's sort of some of the arguments that why right. it's, it's very difficult for individuals to, even with the best intentions, it's it's hard to get out of. Uh, what is some kind? It's sometimes labeled a social trap that that, that in these low trust environment warm environment, it's, it's it's very hard to break it. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a little bit, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so you have these feedback mechanisms that, that makes it very, very difficult uh, from mm-hmm. an, and but but I still think there are things that can be done, and I think the most obvious is that make sure that you do not increase the economic inequality too much because uh, and if you get some really deprived areas, if you get these the, the perception that you have groups that are simply lost or detached from society that's very 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 bad for uh for trust levels so try to incorporate people try to lower uh, levels of, of economic inequality uh that's sort of uh, yeah maybe the best advice and but 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 that goes naturally through a political process and that's yeah you know, <laughs> and that's where i have my nordic bias you know you know put some <laughs> social democrats into power
0: right uh, right i know and, i know, you know yeah. So, yeah oh yeah, yeah.
1: And you, and you do have some movement, right? In in in, in uh, you have Corbyn, Corbyn uh, in in the UK, and and you have Bernie Sanders in, in the US, where you have yeah. a, young, a lot of young people rallying around, uh, well, a little bit extreme, uh, or what in the for, for, for from an American context, extreme persons, but. From a Nordic to a context, well, sort of democratic, right? <laughs> reform, right, I know. Uh,
0: people. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why that's sort of why I started doing focus on was that after traveling to um, Denmark the first time and coming home, I started sharing my eye-opening experiences and things that I had. I would talk to a ton of people. I just interviewed everyone I could. I was actually. Ex- exploring whether to move the family to the country and all these people were saying things to me in ways that no American ever talks. And I came home and I shared with people and I, across the board, there was just this pushback. People just didn't want to um, to hear that it could be done different. And I thought, well, I'm going to do this radio show and I'm going to invite people from these successful socialist democracies to talk about life issues because you guys communicate in ways that are distinct from how Americans typically talk. Yeah, what's normal for you, I would love to have be normal on this side of the Atlantic. It'd be great. So, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it, Christian. Yeah, no, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, We're basically out of time, so I'm going to have to let you go. Um, So, folks, that... That's it. I hope that like me, Focus On allows you to contemplate new ideas, ask creative questions about what's possible in the world, and start to think a little differently. Many thanks go to Windermere Vashon for it is their generosity that has given me the opportunity to create this show. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Christian Albrecht here on Focus On, where my guests share how they hope to see the world change for the better, one shared idea at a time.